the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back to Simple Truth Moments. We are continuing with our series on a book uh, written by a colleague of mine, Don and a Volson called The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium. And we were finishing up last week with chapter 14 called uh, Restored Dominion. Um, and uh, we're going to be just finishing up a couple of items that we were not able to do on the last show. And then we're going to skip on over to uh, chapter 15 which is entitled, As It Is in Heaven. So where we left off last time uh, was talking about the restoration of dominion that uh, Jesus, Yeshua, as his Jewish name is, which means salvation, uh, was restoring to his disciples and to his apostles the authority to basically be the visible image of God to reflect God's character, his nature, the likeness of God. And in order to do that, they were bringing aspects of the kingdom's rulership, the kingdom's um, government, if you will. And where we left off last week was basically... Jesus was doing many of the miracles in his capacity as son of man. And he's referred to as the son of man many more times in the Gospels than he is referred to as the son of God. And we discussed that briefly a couple of shows ago. And why was that? was because Jesus, when he was teaching the handoff of authority, the delegation of of authority, and he was restoring the authority that Father God had originally given to Adam and Eve way back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 to have dominion and rule the earth, to um, tend to it, to keep it, to nurture it. And 
Jesus was all about restoration of what was lost in chapter 3 of Genesis when, unfortunately, mankind believed the false suggestions against the nature and character of God, and they basically handed over their authority voluntarily, although it was through fraud, it was through deceit, but they handed over their authority to a fallen angel who thought he was to have a throne, as we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And with that throne, he and his fallen angels were supposed to be rulers of the earth. And ever since then, we have been suffering this ongoing kingdom versus kingdom conflict, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the fallen angels. So where we left off last time was Yeshua, Jesus, was so confident that uh, his apostles and his disciples could imitate his ministry, which was the casting out of demons, which was healing the sick, and etc. And so Jesus sent them out to attempt it, to try it. And um, he didn't go with them. He sent them out. And we see this first example in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, where he sends out the original 12 apostles. And he commands them to do this following. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. Now, this was a proclamation. This was a declaration, if you will, of the arrival of of a restored divine government back on earth. So what did they do? Well, they began with a declaration that people should repent, which means to change the way they think. And in conjunction with that, they cast out uh, many demons, as it says in Mark 6.13, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The Twelve proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. It was a year of jubilee, and we talked about that last last time. The Spirit of the Lord was upon them as they obeyed. So the training continued, and there was another group that Jesus was to send out, and this time it was the group of the 70 disciples. And we see this in Luke chapter 10. Uh, They also were to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you as they also healed the sick. Um, They returned amazed that the demons were subject to them. That says that in Luke chapter uh, 10, verse 17. And in these cases, both the apostles and the disciples, they followed the patterns of teaching that they had learned you know, even after Jesus had we see these patterns continuing into the book of Acts uh, in Acts chapter 3 verse 4 both Peter and John entered the temple one day and they stepped in front of a lame uh, beggar and Peter directed the man to look at us the man looked at them in expectation of probably receiving some money but instead what the beggar encountered was 
a restoration linked to kingdom rulership of God arriving back on earth. Peter stared into his face, and rather than a traditional prayer, he spoke in the style that he had seen Jesus use at the tomb of Lazarus. And as you recall, we talked about that last week. He, Peter, gave a command. He said to the beggar, the lame beggar, he said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, here it is. This is not a petition. It's not a request. He says, rise up and walk. You can see that in Acts uh, chapter 3, verse 6. It's a very similar command that Jesus uh, gave when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. As you recall from last week, he only, Jesus only said three words after he verified what, the f- what Father God wanted to do with all of those witnesses standing around about ready to see firsthand an example of the restoration of the kingdom of God. And Jesus basically <laughs> gave a command. He said, Lazarus, come out. Some Bibles say, Lazarus, come forth. So the man, uh, the beggar, now switching gears back to Acts chapter 3, verse 6, the uh, beggar acted on the command that he had just been given by Peter, and he reached out. Peter reached out. He grabbed the man's hand and pulled him to his feet. So... To summarize this chapter that we're now wrapping up with is Restored Dominion. Through the Son of Man, Father God reestablished the kingdom that he had designed way back at the beginning of creation. Jesus restored the connection between Father God and man allowing for the restoration of the likeness of God, allowing for man to again take on the character of God. Through that relationship, man could again live in the purpose for which he was designed, for the purpose for which he was created. Man could now, per his purpose, reflect, image, if you will, the character of God to the world. With the restoration of the image of God to man, man could once again devote his delegated authority, his dominion, if you will, as ruler of the earth, to the deliverance of a fallen world. People are looking for deliverance today. They're looking for deliverance. That's Luke chapter 4. That's what Jesus announced when he began his ministry. That's what uh, the Holy Spirit prophesied through the mouth of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. It was all about deliverance. 
deliverance from the hands of those who hate us. That was a quote out of the mouth of Zacharias. Well, Satan and his kingdom and his minions hate us. And we need to be delivered from them, from him. And that actually is the the last thing that we say in the Lord's Prayer. But deliver us from the evil one. So man can now devote his authority, his legal permission to be the ruler of the earth for the deliverance of a fallen world. Now listen, through the proclamation of repentance, in other words, changing the way people think about being delivered from this cursed earth. This was to be done through the healing of the sick and through deliverance from demonic oppression. This was the genuine kingdom of God's dominion. Uh, I'm just going to end with this on this chapter. Uh, Jack Hayford, the uh, used to be the president of the Foursquare Church, um, had a, a huge uh, television ministry and radio ministry for years. He had um, the church on the way up in Van Nuys, California for decades. And uh, anyway, he, oh, he also started the Kingdom, um, the King Seminary um, in Van Nuys that I think now moved over to uh, Texas, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, Jack Hayford said this in a class that Don Enervolson took way back in the day, 1972. And talking about the kingdom, Jack Hayford, as the instructor in this class, said, A citizen of the kingdom of God is someone who's commissioned by God to live on the earth and to kick the hell out of it. Interesting. That's what we just finished. Our job is to basically eliminate the governing, the existing governing system of Satan and his fallen angels in this earth. That's what our job is. All right, let's shift gears. Let's go over to chapter 15. Um, and this is entitled, As It Is in Heaven. And uh, what this is going to deal with is when we are praying the Lord's Prayer and we make those statements in the middle of the prayer, we say, not a petition, but more of a command. It is a command. Uh, when we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, listen to this. This is, this is a pr part of the prayer known as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. And the next is what we say, your kingdom come. That is a similar command to what Jesus told Lazarus to do. That's a similar command to what we just saw Peter do in Acts chapter 3 with the lame beggar. Your kingdom come. Now, that's what we're commanding is God's government to arrive on the scene at the situation that you're in, in the particular circumstance that you're in, with dealing with the particular individual that you're dealing with. 
basically you're not operating on your own um, steam, so to speak. You are operating completely under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. And you are going to check with Father God before you say something. In Jesus' name, you pray to the Father and you say, Father, I only want to say your words. I only want to do your acts here. I only want to be your representative. Send your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name so I may speak and do only what will reflect your will in this moment, Father. And so what follows after your kingdom come, the evidence is that of God's kingdom arriving at that your particular challenge or your particular situation that you're dealing with is the next line. That's the evidence. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Because the next line, it says, on earth, in other words, we're asking heaven to come down and manifest itself in the here and now, right now and right here, as it is in heaven. Well, heaven is where God's will especially in the third heaven, is operating all the time without any hindrance, without any obstacles. That is the norm, as it is in heaven. So the author here um, starts off by saying Jesus spent a lot of time in desolate places, and um, what he was doing there was seeking solitude for the purpose of entering into conversation with, with his Father. In other words, prayer. And, you know, he'd spend all day ministering to crowds of people. But then, as Mark one thirty five tells us, he would slip away to a desolate place. And in Luke chapter 12, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 12, it indicates that he would continue the entire night in prayer. And these times were usually spent alone, um, but sometimes also with the apostles, as um, as we see in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now, the author says a reasonable guess at what the content of those prayers might be that he was recharging his battery, so to speak, after expending his, his supernatural energy uh, with his ministry uh, all the previous day. Uh, but Jesus encouraged the disciples to get away by themselves regularly. Um, for example, on let's see here, Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Uh, he told them on one occasion, um, because so many people were coming and going, the disciples had no time, no leisure time to even eat. So Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. But there was actually more to this resting time in prayer. It was actually um, shown by one of those prayer times when one of the three apostles were present. This is um, known as the incident of the transfiguration. You can see that in um, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Um, And Jesus takes him up to a high place, and um, all of a sudden Jesus' face 
began to be altered. His clothing became dazzling, dazzling white. And behold, the three apostles, Peter, James, and John, saw that Yeshua, Jesus, was talking with two men who happened to be Moses and Elijah in verses 29 and 30 of Luke 9. Um, The point of the author is that there was conversation going on, and, um, and he contends that Jesus was specifically talking with them about his departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem in the near future. Um, the author makes a comment that it's interesting that Jesus almost always knew what was going to happen before it did happen. Now, why was that? What was going on? Uh, there's an example with the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus um, clearly had already a full knowledge of the sequence of events that were before him, right before him. And um, since he had not only prayed about it, but he had already discussed it earlier with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. But in the garden, he engages the Father in a conversation about perhaps finding some alternative to what he knew was coming. And in that situation, Jesus already knew what the Father's will was. He didn't like it, understandably, but nevertheless, he submitted to it. You can see that in Matthew 26, uh, 39, uh, also verse 42, verse 44, also in Mark 14, 35 through 36, and Luke uh, 22, 42. And of course, I think that's probably one of the most important times um, or moments in the Bible where the... Um, the way Jesus prayed was, in essence, a deciding moment for the notification to Satan that his authority, his power over the earth, was coming to an end. Uh, Jesus prayed that, Father, if it's possible that this cup uh, pass from me, and, but yet, he then makes this next statement. Some Bibles have nevertheless, some Bibles uh, say yet, not my will, but thine be done, yours be done. So basically, the messaging to the fallen enemy was, your kingdom is a kingdom of disobedience, of rebellion. God's kingdom, Father God's kingdom, is manifested through the opposite. It's manifested through obedience. And here we have the Son of God, Jesus, who is also the Son of Man, telling the Father in prayer, I'm paraphrasing now, even if it kills me, even if it kills me in this most torturous way, I will do your will. That moment signaled the end of the authority and the power of Satan's kingdom over the earth because they thought if we can't intimidate him or entice him, 
don't forget what was happening in you know the earlier part of the week he was welcomed as the as the king to Israel on Palm Sunday and and I'm sure the temptation was they want to make you king why are you going to the cross um, but nevertheless Jesus knew his um, purpose and what his mission was and it was to carry out the father's will and to be an atonement for all of mankind's rebellion, all of mankind's sin, and to basically be an expiation or an atonement of, to say, all right, I'm going to take the hit in their place of, I think it's Ezekiel 18 that says um, the cause and effect is every, the soul that sins shall die. Well, he took that penalty so that we could have the gift of an opportunity to become the sons of God through deliverance and through being saved by Jesus. So, very, very large moment, huge moment. Getting back to as it is in heaven. um, So even though Jesus knew what was coming, um, because he had, in prayer, seen it, he spent a lot of time in prayer. And uh, he's given us a, an example of how we ought to operate if we're going to be used of this kingdom. Um, the author uses several verses. Um, he refers to several verses um, validating the foreknowledge of Jesus um, about his knowing the events of that particular week. In Luke 9.22, it talks about um, he knew the details, uh, such as the fact that when he sent his disciples into a village, they would find a donkey for him to use in his triumphal entry. That we can see that in Mark 21. I'm sorry, Matthew 21, verses 2 through 4. And then before the feast of the, uh, feast of the uh, Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of his world and go back to his Father. We see that in John 13, 1. He also knew in John thirteen eleven, that Judas was about to betray him. We'll talk about more examples of how Jesus got this knowledge ahead of time, and he always seemed to know what was going to occur before it happened. We'll see you after the break. God bless. Welcome back. We are into the chapter 15 of the book, The Kingdom, From Creation to the Millennium. This chapter is called As It Is in Heaven. And what we've been discussing is how is it that Jesus already knew so many events that were going to happen ahead of time? Was it because of the amount of time he spent in prayer? Was he actually looking into heaven and being able to ascertain. um, When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is Jesus giving us teaching or training on saying, I'm going to be an example, and I'm going to show you how to go into the heavenly and see 
how my father's will is being carried out up in the heavens because that's what's supposed to be brought down to earth so that the restoration of the kingdom can take place. So we're going to continue on here um, of more examples of Jesus knowing about events uh, before they even happened. Um, Jesus knew ahead of time about how he was to be arrested and when. You can see that in John um, chapter 18, verse 4. Um, none of the events of the Passion Week ever took him by surprise. Um, but according to the author, neither did any of the events during his ministry. Um, according to the author, one of the remarkable characteristics of the ministry of Jesus was the degree to which he almost always seemed to know what was coming. Uh, the author talks about the raising of Lazarus. We discussed that last week at some length. Um, and the sequence of events demonstrates that Jesus was prepared for the moment of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Uh, in John chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus said when he learned that Lazarus was very ill, he stated in John 11, verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. And in the confidence that Lazarus would live, Jesus de delayed his departure for a couple of days. After those two days, he shows up, and when we say that Jesus knew that Lazarus would live, it refers to the end result, not the intervening circumstances. So Jesus announced in, in verse 7 of John 11, let us go to Judea again. So Jesus plainly states in advance his understanding of the situation. In verse 14 and 15 of John 11, he, st he says, Lazarus has died for your sake. He's talking to the crowd now. And I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Jesus had already looked into heaven and he had already seen the Father's will so that he knew exactly what to do and what to speak when the time came. According to the author, his decisions were not blind guesses. Jesus never tagged, quote, if it, will, if it be your will at the end of a prayer. He already knew the Father's will before he spoke. And if he didn't know the Father's will, he did not speak. Jesus was prepared by virtue of the time that he dedicated to prayer. So when it comes to this moment, leading up to Jesus' understanding what his mission was in this particular instance with Lazarus, what Jesus had seen when he looked into heaven was a living Lazarus. I'm going to say that again. What Jesus had seen when he looked into heaven, 
as he was praying to the Father, he had already seen a living Lazarus. So when he arrives at the tomb, he is presented circumstantially with a dead Lazarus. But in that moment, Jesus considered that what he had earlier seen in heaven was more important and more relevant. And he was going to make the choice to say, what I saw in heaven is the Father's will, and what I had earlier seen in heaven is reflective of the kingdom being put on display. So the author quotes um, another author by the name of Miles Monroe, who defines faith or trust in terms of comparing, listen to this, this is, this is significant, in terms of comparing what we see in heaven or what we saw in heaven when we previously looked at God's will with what we see now in the circumstances which are immediately before us. So I'm going to say it again. Faith or trust is defined in terms of comparing what we saw in heaven when we were in prayer, when we previously looked at God's will being done in heaven, with what we see now in the circumstances which are immediately before us. And, and this is critical, we choose, we decide to believe what we previously saw in heaven being God's will. So in his words, this is Miles Monroe, if what I see is not what I earlier saw in heaven, then what I see now on earth must be only temporary. The command for Lazarus to come out was based on the certainty of what Jesus had earlier seen in heaven, not what he was looking at when he was at the tomb. Even when Jesus was overcome with such emotion that he did weep, as we can see that in verse 35 of John 11, all that mattered was that he had seen the Father's will earlier demonstrated in heaven when he was in prayer. So on that basis, Jesus demanded that God's kingdom, Father God's rulership, Father God's kingship, his will as done in heaven would now come to earth when he gave the command, Lazarus, come out. That's pretty significant stuff. And it requires something on our part that is going to probably change the way we pray significantly. Uh, The author gives some other examples. Um, There were other occasions Peter was concerned about paying taxes in Matthew 17, 27. Uh, Jesus sends him to the sea to throw out a fishing line. Quote, take the first fish that comes up, he said, and when you open its mouth, uh, you will find a shekel. 
take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. In another uh, conversation that he had, I believe in John 4, with the Samaritan woman, uh, in that conversation, Jesus knew things about her that he could not have known without divine revelation. He asked the Samaritan woman to go and bring her husband. But she responded that she had no husband. Jesus answered back, You are right, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And the lady responded, What you have said is true. So this is the pattern. This, this was the pattern back then, and it continues to be the pattern. Jesus knew things ahead of time. He knew things ahead of time. This was the result of the time that he spent in so-called, as the Bible says, desolate places when he was praying, often by himself. But as a result of that time, investment of looking into heaven to determine what is the Father's will. Because Father God is timeless. You know, when we're down on this earth, we're in an earth of, of limited time and limited space. And so when you're looking into heaven, you're looking into a timeless um, construct. Jesus, as a result of all the time that he spent praying, conversing, asking questions. He was prepared for any eventuality during the days of his ministry. The pattern Jesus displayed should not be written off or dismissed as beyond the reach of mere mortals. As noted, Jesus acted often in the capacity of a human being in a way that could be imitated, copied, if you will, by his disciples. We've talked about that in the past, about most of um, the miracles of Jesus were done in the capacity of, son of him being the son of man, not being the son of God. And um, you can get that on, on the podcast here at KPRZ or on my website where we talked about that in greater detail. But the evidence throughout history of God's people shows that human beings have in every period of history exercise an ability to look into heaven like for example in the old testament there are examples of of prophets and and witnesses of god who did that they were able to look into heaven to determine the father's will in order that they might act on it per their designated authority so we see in daniel 228 god reveals mysteries as daniel put it we have an example here in First Kings uh, 22:17. Uh, Micaiah uh, looked into heaven when he saw the armies of Israel scattered, and then he looked again, and he saw the throne of God surrounded by a host of heaven. In First Kings 22:19, his prophecy to King Ahab was simply a description of what he, as a prophet, had seen in heaven earlier. Uh, in Second Kings 16.11, the king of Syria once complained that the king of Israel seems to know every move of mine. Will you not show me 
who of us is for the king of Israel? He demanded of his servants. And so one of the servants answered the king, and he says, None, my lord, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That's in uh, 2 Kings 16.12. Elisha saw what happened in heaven, and he passed along his observation of what he had seen earlier. So the king sends out an army to surround Elisha's home and to seize him and bring him back. And we're now referring to 2 Kings 6.15. When Elisha's servant sees the multitude who had trapped them, he cries out, Alas, my master, He's obviously fearful because he's seen a whole lot of army surrounding them right now. What shall we do? Well, what is Elisha's prayer? Elisha had earlier seen into heaven. And so he simply stated to his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He says that in verse 16. So Elisha then asked that God open his servant's eyes so that he also could see into heaven as well. So the servant, when that occurred, saw mountains around them covered with horses and chariots of fire all there to defend Elisha. We see that in 2 Kings 6.17. The army of Syria was struck blind, and then Elisha had to lead them back to their master. So such are the examples of visions in the Old Testament. They tend to be given through prophets. But all of a sudden in the New Testament, the pool of recipients who are candidates to be able to see into the heavens dramatically increased with the Advent or the coming of the Holy Spirit that we see in the second chapter of Acts. Peter the Apostle picks up on this right away, and this is what he was this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel he announced in Acts two sixteen and in two seventeen. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons, plural, and on your daughters, plural, shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Acts 2.17 And so it was to be through the church age, every believer would be ushered into the patterns of spiritual discernment and prayer proclaimed by the prophet. The last thing Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven was a prediction of how they also would be enabled to perform the ministry of the kingdom of God. In Acts 1.8, he tells them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And when the Spirit came, Peter declared, that the door to entering into that power was through prophecy, visions, and dreams by the entire assembly of believers, both young and old. The Spirit would speak, and obedience to the word 
from the Spirit of the Lord would unleash the power to be unstoppable witnesses to the kingdom. I'll say that again. When the Spirit did come, Peter declared that the door to entering into that power was through prophecy, visions, and dreams by the entire assembly of believers, young and old. The Spirit would speak, and obedience to the word from the Spirit of the Lord would unleash the power to be unstoppable witness to the kingdom. The key there is obedience to the word from the Spirit of the Lord. Power doesn't get unleashed and be divine power until it is obeyed. That's critical that we learn that. Another example in Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 10 through 16, Peter saw into heaven. See, Peter saw into heaven in the form of a vision that altered his idea, his perception of what was clean and what was unclean. That vision prepared Peter for the invitation from Cornelius, a Gentile, to come to his home and to teach him the gospel, something that Peter had previously believed on his understanding of Scripture was forbidden to a Jew to do. But Peter later testified that the Spirit told me to go with them. You can see that in Acts 11, verse 12. Another example, when Philip, while traveling um, south from Jerusalem to Gaza, comes upon the strange sight of a eunuch from Ethiopia sitting in his uh, chariot and reading the scroll of Isaiah. And in that moment, it was the Holy Spirit who said to him, to Philip, go over and join his chariot. You can see that in Acts 8, verse 29. Paul's calling to be a missionary to the Gentiles came through an extra-biblical direction of the Spirit. Um, we can see this in Acts thirteen twelve. Uh, let's see here. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, quote, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And we see in verse 4 of Acts 13, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So the decision, as we see in um, Acts uh, chapter 15, made by the council in Jerusalem about whether or not Christians should be circumcised or have to follow the the, uh, code of the Torah, was made on the basis of spiritual guidance beyond the written word of God. We see in Acts 15, verse 28, quote, it seemed good to us as the Holy Spirit and It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, that was the conclusion that the council arrived at of what the uh, Gentile believers had to uh, comply with and not comply with. And basically, they were saying, we can use our minds up to a point, but we need spiritual intervention and discernment and direction. Without that, you cannot do or know Father God's will. Um. Paul knew in advance that, um, as we see in Acts 27.10, the imperial guards who were bringing him to Rome, uh, when they set sail at the time they intended, Paul knew in advance that it would cause a result in injury and much loss. He warned them, but he was ignored, and the ship was caught in a violent storm. 
God encouraged Paul with a word delivered by an angel who said that the ship would be lost, but all the lives aboard would be spared. You can see that in Acts 27, 21 through 26. So this was the pattern followed by Jesus and which was passed on to his disciples who demonstrated it for every member of the church. The author says this, this does not mean, of course, that things were always easy. Jesus had an advantage, obviously, because he was sinless and his communication with, with his father was unobscured and unhindered. The disciples, even the most spiritually attuned, often got it wrong or missed something. Paul and his entourage made plans to go to Bithynia and faithfully pursued that goal, but when they arrived at the border, the Holy Spirit stopped them. They weren't sure which way to go, so they obeyed the check or the stop sign that had been given by the Holy Spirit, and they waited. So during the night, a dream clarifies God's will, and the next day they headed out for Macedonia. You can see that in Acts 16. Um, verses 6 through 10. And the author points out sometimes getting it right takes a while. Um, When Paul was operating in Philippi, a slave girl began to follow him, and she was possessed by a spirit of divination that she had used earlier to engage in fortune-telling, which brought her owners a lot of money. She started crying out to the crowds around Paul and his followers, quote, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You can see that in Acts chapter 16, verse 17. So on the surface, this would have appeared to be a confirmation of Paul's ministry, not an attack by a demonic power. But the manner in which the girl continued to shout proved to be disruptive, and Paul became, quote, greatly annoyed. So he finally turns to the girl. He spoke to the spirit, quote, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. You see that in verse 18. Note that he did not come to this conclusion or his action quickly. The girl had followed him around for, quote, many days, end of quote. Even Paul occasionally took some time, took a while to figure things out. But yet the relative difficulty people have in hearing the voice of God doesn't invalidate our need for listening and to get better at listening. If anything, it ramps up or amplifies our need to listen. According to Amos uh, 3, verse 7, God doesn't do anything without first revealing it to the servants his servants, the prophets. And in the New Testament, that would now include additional folks like sons and daughters and young and old and male and female, we see in Joel 2.28. This would appear to be a standard biblical process for prayer. God reveals his will to servants. His servants, using their dominion authority, that they were given at creation as rulers of the earth, speak, or more precisely, command his will into existence once they verify, once they have ascertained what God's will is. 
Clearly, this kind of kingdom activity involves more than a short daily devotional time of prayer or a short reading of the Bible and meditating for just a few minutes in the morning. The author says it involves an active, non-stop intentionality to listen and to respond when the Spirit's voice speaks. So we'll finish this up next week. This is an amazing chapter, How to Look into Heaven as it is in heaven and find out what God's will is so that we can carry it out. I will see you next week. May God give you many simple truth moments. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.